Hi, I'm Amy. Yeah, and I'm Ashley. And we're the hosts of Prize Fighting Kangaroo, whose pilot you're about to listen to. We just wanted to give you a quick heads up that like pilots for any kind of media, this one's got a few speed bumps and a little, uh, you know, a little kinks that we're still working out. So bear with us and we promise you that you will have a magnificent listening experience. Yeah. Or not, we don't really care either way. We're not getting paid to do this. That's right. It's a free service just for you. But we encourage you to stick it out uh, after this first episode. We've got a lot of great topics we're going to cover in the future. Uh, and then look for us on Facebook to find out what they are. Prize Fighting Kangaroo. This is Prize Fighting Kangaroo. In partnership with Yab Yum Music and Arts and Seven Streams Media. This is a podcast about movies and how they impact culture. We'll unformally be dissecting movie culture and cinematic tropes. And hopefully making you laugh and maybe cry. Now you might be wondering, who are these two Giacomos I'm listening to right now? Why should I devote an hour of my life to them? Fair question. We'll tell you who we are. I'm Amy. And I am based in Phoenix, and I do a lot of arts and culture writing where I do the same kind of thing, uh, offer my opinion, uh, whether people like it or not, on a lot of arts and culture activities going on about town and around the globe. I'm Ashley. Uh, I'm also a writer on various arts, music, and film-related stuff. I'm also an actor, and I've been told on numerous occasions I have an uncanny resemblance to the country singer Vince Gill. Uh, which I can confirm because I've seen his album covers. He does look a little bit. I never thought that, but you do look a little bit like Vince Gill. Yeah, I saw that in your bio, and I thought I would have never thought that. And then I wondered uh, if I should look and confirm that for myself, and then I forgot until just now. <laughs> so it's true. I'm here to say it's true. I'm kind of like his evil doppelganger. Like he got to marry Amy Grant and be like this multi-million country like superstar, and I'm just this Giacomo living in Phoenix. Yeah, see, I don't believe that you might be the evil side because they're like the uh, outward-facing, like really exuberant, happy Christians. So they chances are on the inside they're probably actually way more dark than you are, but we'll let you have it. You're, yeah. But, you know, for using mirror universe logic, I've never <laughs> seen Vince Gill with a goatee or a beard or mustache where I had all of the above at various points in my life, so... Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying, smoking gun. All right, you're making a you're making a good case for your own. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Satanic presence. <laughs> <laughs> well, today's episode, uh, which is our first inaugural episode of the Prize Fighting Kangaroo, Woo-hoo. we're going to talk about a subject that we all have to deal with at some point: big old death. Dead people. Uh, the movie industry has uh, a slew of them this year, uh, and we're going to talk about some of them, some of our favorites, uh, some of our unfavorites. Uh, we're going to call this episode Corpse Party. It's a real corpse party. We're, pull- <laughs> <laughs> we're pulling out the bodies. So get, and, a, get a snack and a drink. And just to give you a heads up, uh, this is, we, are, we are talking right now in September. So it's very likely that when this comes out, there could be all sorts of other deaths that happen. Maybe we get lucky and Michael Bay passes on a giant <laughs> explosion. We don't know. You can only talk about what's happened up to this present time. Yes. Don't think we're like particularly excluding people that die between uh, mid-September until the end of the year. We'll celebrate their deaths another time. Exactly. So let's see. Who should we kick off with tonight? 
I think we should talk about Bill Paxton. Oh, yes. Love the Bill Paxton. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away this year uh, kind of at a young age. I mean, he was only early 60s. Game over, man. And honestly, I'm not sure right offhand how he died. I think he had a heart attack. Game Um, over. It sounded like it was natural causes. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer. He's just one of those actors that... It's one of those things where it's like you never sit around going, man, I wish Bill Paxton was in a movie. But when you see him in a film, you're always, it, it's going to be reassuring about his presence. Right. You get really excited. Like, oh, Stripes. He was in Stripes. He had a little part. Um, I think probably for kids growing up in the 80s, a, a big memorable uh, Bill Paxton uh, experience is him as Brother Chet in Weird Science, <laughs> uh, where he might have been one of the just best. You know, the 80s movies are great because there are so many... Uh, big, big older sibling, little sibling dynamics, and there's always one that's you know extra creepy to the other, and usually it's the little kids getting picked on by the older siblings, and he kind of took that to another level in oh, that absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Well, I was this character type that he plays really well too. Um, like in the movie Aliens, with, you know, he has that, the Marine Hudson who starts off as like this chest puffing total badass and the minute they touch down to the, the colony and they're getting swamped by the aliens like he just loses his shit and he turns into this big like wet blanket of a coward and, and few actors like I think could do that convincingly where at one minute he's this compelling kind of badass character the next minute he's just totally falling to pieces and you believe like both aspects like it feels like a real thing game over and in True Lies which is like my favorite Bill Paxton role you first meet this guy and he's just this sleazy car salesman pretending to be a spy because he wants to sleep with Jamie Lee Curtis which yeah. You can't really blame him. But, um, yeah, it seems like she went through a, a lot of uh, phases where people really wanted to sleep with her. Uh, she seemed pretty desirable to a lot of people over the years. I remember different phases, but it seemed like that her, I guess, fuckability factor was, was always pretty high. It's very true. It's very true. I think when the, the first time I ever saw boobs was watching Trading Places. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, hey, all right. Yeah, she's, she's notorious for the, for the boobs. But he was great in that film because, you know, he just plays this complete, massive, total rat fucking dirtbag. And you almost believe this guy's legit up until the point where Schwarzenegger attacks him at night and he just pisses himself in terror. And I'm just thinking, in terms of, like, film cowards, it's hard to think of a better one than Bill Paxton. Yeah. And then also um, uh, the... Oh, I can't think of the name of the show. Oh, Big Love. Oh, yeah. 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 So he was able to sustain a, a main character role, uh, you know, kind of that Mormon, uh, you know, lifestyle uh, patriarch of that untraditional Mormon family. And also uh, definitely show a little bit of, uh, he has a vulnerable side. Well, and I think one of my, my favorite, like, weird factoids about Bill Paxton is that he directed the music video for Fish Heads. Yeah. Which is when I found out about it, I'm like, what, really? The Barnes and Barnes, for those who, who aren't in the know. It's kind of a weird, uh, like, 70s sort of Dr. Demeno style uh, yeah. quirky band uh, song. Um, what else was Bill in? Aliens. Game over. Yeah. Miami Vice. Miami Vice, the TV series. Oh, Near Dark. Near Dark uh, was great. At least forgot that one. Trespass was great. Twister. 
And Tombstone, we had like one of the, one of the all-time great fake mustaches. Although everybody oh. in that film had amazingly fake mustaches. <laughs> and Frailty, which is maybe a little bit of an underrated movie. Did he direct that one? He did. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, Powers Booth, who is another person that passed away this year. Uh, Powers oh. Booth was a really fantastic character actor um, and probably gave uh, the most legendary performance of a cult leader, Jim Jones. He played Jim Jones, and I think it was a maybe in the 70s um, that was really the def- the defining uh, movie, The Guyanic Tragedy. And I think it was made for TV. Um, and they never really did like a lot of exposés other than you, you see like the A&E type of things or the bios on Jim Jones. But Powers Booth was, uh, yeah, he was perfect in that. Yeah. I just think, um, this doesn't sound really tacky, but I think my favorite Powers Booth role <laughs> ever it has to be his, um, him as the villain in Sudden Impact. Oh. <laughs> I was watching it the other day, and it's like, it, it's, 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 you know, it's like a dumb Die Hard ripoff. We're like, wait, what if it's Die Hard in a hockey ring with the vice president as a hostage? But it's amazing because it's this Van Damme film that's like, like ridiculously violent. Like, it's like, like the violence is so, there's a part where he battles a, um, a hockey mascot in a kitchen. So it's him beating the shit out of somebody in his giant animal costume, and they're like ducking over his head and like fry bats and like just with meat tenderizers. Like, like it's so overly top gruesome. And Powers Booth plays like the villain. Like he's basically the um, oh god, oh, I'm forgetting his name now. The, the Snape, the guy who played Snape, Alan. Oh, Alan Rickman. Yeah. He's, he's basically playing the Alan Rickman character inside an impact. But he's great because he's like Power Bruce got like this total dry, almost self-awareness. Like he knows he's the villain in a movie and he's just playing it up. Right. Yeah. I think he's got that real subtle way of like kind of hamming things up to get a little bit of that uh, reaction. Like I'm a little staunch and a little bit spooky. He was uh, in MacGruber and it was kind of like a a spoofy colonel kind of role. Um, and then on 24, he was also a, either, I think, the vice president. Uh, and you'll also kind of get that sense that he's uh, he's like very serious and really good at being wicked. But, you know, he knows that he is like he's getting an opportunity to kind of have that raised eyebrow, like wicked, uh, creepy vibe. It's just one of those actors where it's like if he was like in his 20s when American Psycho was made, he would have been like perfect casting as Patrick Bateman. Oh yeah. Although I think Christian Bale did a pretty good job. He was oh, he was great. Yeah. Bale was great. It's just you look at Powers Booth and you just match him as being like already like a violent yuppie anyway. Like he just has that demeanor. Yeah. Um, kind of one of the last things he was on before he died was Nashville, which I I do admit that I sometimes watch. It's a soapy TV series about Nashville, like the town <laughs> of Nashville, <laughs> uh, with a lot of like cheesy country music that they can pull out from the show and then market and send the actors on tour, uh, and so it became become its own like little you know sub genre of the country scene. But he played a sort of like a, a high-powered uh, political figure on that show, too, yeah. and was really good. So maybe that was kind of his his thing. Like, I feel like if he would have been in more of those 70s roles, like The Parallax View or some of those, like, corporate espionage kind of movies, like, he would have had a, a good place. In, oh, yeah. And yeah, nice little niche going. Yeah, I don't know that he... He seems maybe like he was a little bit underused overall, but... Well, you know, and speaking of TV, I mean, we also had another huge TV icon died this year. Which one? Well, you're going to make it after all. 
Oh, Mary Tyler Moore. That's right. Yeah. That was a big loss for the uh, for the TV and film industry. Mary was huge. Um, you know, everybody knows her for the, from the Mary Tyler Moore show, where she was just charming and kind of goofy, and, like, you wanted to champion her whole life. Uh, Mary Richards, uh, you know, the girl being in the, you know, the newsroom, the big city newsroom girl, uh, and she was charming. But my favorite Mary Tyler Moore performance of all time was her, as the mom in Ordinary People. Uh, it is the most bone-chilling cold performance of a <laughs> disconnected parent I think that you probably could ever see like I think it's one of those things that you could study uh, just to show like uh, it was sort of that crumbling of America like post 60s that 70s kind of waspy uh, suburban dream like you kind of get behind that the hairdo facade and like the brick buildings and stuff and see where people are just like miserable and falling apart and uh, uh, Timothy is it Timothy Hutton is the son yeah. that she's not so fond of and uh, just that whole relationship between the mother and son and how that affects his life because his mom is basically just a, you know, just a wall, wall of stone with no emotion for him whatsoever. That she lost a sibling. Uh, he lost one of his siblings. Yeah. So she kind of doesn't have that love to share with him anymore. And uh, it's just one of those things that I, I, I don't think I would, could ever get it out of you know out of my head which is the perfect like avatar of like stone cold wasp fish yep yeah i would i highly recommend that to anybody who hasn't seen it um and i think that was probably right around yeah 1980 and it was right after that mary tyler moore show ended just a year before that so you know that mary that uh you know people were used to that comedic mary um, it was like an opportunity for her to probably exciting, you know, for her to do something new too, and then uh, to show people that she could do to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's interesting you brought that up because I think another another person passed away this year who had that similar blend of they started out as comedy and kind of got defined by that, and eventually shifted to more serious work was you know Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Who is who is full disclosure like I come from a French family. I was the only person born in this country. <laughs> I don't share my countryman's love of comedic Jerry Lewis films. Like, I can't. I tried watching Night Professor a few years ago, and like it was like having <laughs> nails being shoved into my ears and eyes at the same time. It was awful. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. I don't find, like, there's anything... Uh it doesn't fall into any kind of comfort level to me. Like it doesn't fall into the so over the top wacky that it's like, you know, and you're just, you're so absorbed by it. Like, oh my God, he's a bumbling and stumbling and falling all over himself. It's so completely fucking goofy that, oh, it's endearing. And then it's not, uh, you know, it's not brilliant comedy either. Uh, I mean, I guess to some people it really is, but I never, I could never find a real sincerity in it. Like when he did, uh, like a serious role, like in King of Comedy. Mm. Then I was like, this seems sincere to me. That's the first time for me that I felt like he's doing something sincere and not trying too hard. Yeah. Well, I did it too, because if you read like a, lot of the, a lot of the interviews that he did off camera, I mean, the persona in King of Comedy feels really close to what he's in real life. Yeah. He's just like this, this, this total bitter. Prick. Total prick. <laughs> total bitter, just... A guy basically just waiting to die, essentially. Yeah. And so, he's amazing in that film. I mean, everyone's amazing in that film. For anybody who hasn't seen the film, he plays a, a comedian, also named Jerry, uh, who gets kidnapped by a kind of a 
just a whacked out dude named Rupert Pupkin, played by Robert De Niro, brilliantly. And then his cohort, who's also a Jerry fan, <laughs> oh, yeah. played by Sandra Bernhardt. And everyone is exceptional. I mean, it's like watching a stage play, really, because it's just three of them. You could, you know, put their their dynamic in a room without even some of the peripheral characters, and uh, that's all you need. Uh, <laughs> and Jerry is playing um, a very famous kind of, you know, comedian who doesn't have time for these fans anymore or time to suffer anybody that he sees uh, as a fool. And uh, it's, it's so prominent how annoyed he is in just by anybody <laughs> who's interested in him in general, let alone two people that have kidnapped him in order to get his time. And, uh, yeah, maybe it, maybe it seems sincere because by all accounts he was... A real prick. Yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting, too, because when you look at the way that De Niro plays that character in the film, like, he's just kind of this tall, spindly guy. He wears ill-fitting suits. He's like very kind of a manic energy. Like, he feels like who Jerry Lewis was, like, decades ago, like young Jerry Lewis. So it's interesting seeing the old Jerry Lewis being held hostage by his by somebody who's basically his younger version. Yeah. And just seeing how completely irritated and horrified he is by that. Like, I wonder if inside of him... He could see, you know what I mean? Like, he was extra annoyed because it was so close to real life for him. Like, in his mind, was he like, oh, my God, I was this kind of a, you know, maybe that's, like, way too meta. But maybe he, you know, he could sort of see that. So he, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have to stretch too much to, to act or, like. No wonder little, Dean hated me. Yeah, a little anger came from just from facing his own self. But, yeah, to me, like, if he would have done ten things like that, I would have. I would have found him much more intriguing. But now you did mention to me that you knew kind of an interesting movie fact about him that I think a lot of people don't know about. And oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I believe it was 1972. Uh, Jerry Lewis made a film called The Day the Clown Cried, which is perhaps one of the most notoriously unreleased films ever made. Because he wrote, he, he, direct, he didn't write the film, he directed it. And it was based off a script where the idea of it was that he plays a, a Jewish stand-up comic who gets sent to uh, you know gets to a concentration camp during the Holocaust, and basically gets recruited by the Nazis to entertain the children in the camps and pacify them to help lead them to the gas chamber. And so Lewis makes this film. He screens it for a few critics, and then he has that moment of realization where I'm like, "What the fuck did I just make? This film is horrible." <laughs> so he basically refuses to let it be released. So to this day, the film has not had a proper release. Like it's not available on DVD. You can't see in theaters. To the best of my knowledge, there's no rip of it available anywhere online. Uh, I think one of the only copies that exists now is um, in 2015, Lewis donated a copy of the David Clown Cry to the Library of Congress with the, um, the provision that they cannot release it until 2024. So at this point, you know, eventually this movie will come out. But we'll have to wait a little while for it. Do you know what the the reasoning was with that particular date? Is it just the the minimum or maximum amount of time that has to go by before it can be shown? Or did he just know, I won't be around and have to deal with the, any kind of fallout or commentary? Honestly, I think it's got to be that. Because 2024 <laughs> is not that far in the future. I think he just figured, like, statistically, I'll probably be dead before this year. So I don't have to hear any of the, the blowback from it. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of an interesting. I mean, I would love to see it. I, yeah. You know, I guess if we're around to, in 2024, then we'll all have a we'll have a we'll do some kind of screening party or something. Yeah, provided the uh, world hasn't like cons been consumed by like a Category 10 hurricane by then, or yeah, or if anybody or nukes. knows anything else about it or wants to share something on it, we 
want to uh, make sure you get in touch with us because we love to hear those kind of stories. Um, I, I just, it just it fascinates me because I just think, like, because when you hear of a premise, you go, that is incredibly disturbing. <laughs> like, 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 you don't have to think that hard about it. Like, this is a really bizarre idea. Like, like, this is a really fucked up idea. And so yeah. what was Jerry Lewis thinking? I mean, too, where he's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to put some, a couple million dollars in this baby, put it out in the world. This is a good idea. Yeah, and then what was the moment that he realized, like, wait a minute, I'm shelving this, and I don't want anyone to touch it. Like, when he made it, was he like, was it a time where he was, like, hitting the bottle and, like, I'm going to do something new? Or, you know, this is really going to define me. This is going to, you know, and then he said, what, like, what made him come to his senses or... Yeah, exactly. It's like we, we talk, everybody talks about, oh, this art form is problematic or this is problematic. Like that film is like the definition of problematic, and like in like for, in every conceivable way, it's why? Why would you make this movie? Did he star in it too? Did you say? Yeah. So he, he is the clown. He's the clown. Like he, oh. he directed it, and he's also like he's also the the concentration camp clown. Yeah. All you people getting jazzed up about Pennywise and creepy clowns. Like, I don't think that you you might be able to touch that one. Like, <laughs> Jerry Lewis's concentration camp clown. It's a secret prequel uh, to It. <laughs> like, after the war, the clown leaves the camp. He moves to Derry. <laughs> he loves a quaint town, this clown. He's like, uh, you know, this looks like a place I could settle in and maybe get involved with some children in a different way. Uh, <laughs> it's like, look, leading kids to death is all I know. I don't have any other yeah. job skills, all right? This is right. what I do. Whether they're on a train, whether it's just a kid, you know, floating his little boat down the street or whatever. Yeah, I'm going to get some kids. Uh, and Yeah, maybe that's what it was, and we don't know. Um, but, yeah, if anybody has any scoop on that, we would love to hear it. Um, even though he made that terrible movie, Ricky and the Flash, I still like Jonathan Demme. Oh. And, uh, he did pass away this year. And, you know, God, we love to never say anything bad about Meryl Streep. And she doesn't usually give us any reason to, but I don't know if you caught any of that. Big turd fest, by the way. Just a big heap of crap, like a steamy, smelly, like just a terrible movie. It was like it was basically a lifetime movie. Uh, not to, you know, trounce on Jonathan Demme's death. Yeah. We have nice things to say about him, but uh, I'm sad that that's one of the, the last things he went out on because he was, you know, a pretty talented director. Uh, but I did catch some of that recently, and... Uh, Oof. Yeah. I, I, was, I, I just have a trailer. Yeah. And I, I remember watching it being like, yeah, you have to pull a dump truck full of money to my house to get me to go see this movie. Yeah. Uh, on the better side of things, though, we can uh, talk about some of the good things that he did. Uh, in addition to many of them, oh, yeah. uh, you know, The Silence of the Lambs, that's a classic. Oh, of like, course. But the thing with Demi, too, is that like um, a lot of directors have a signature style. You look like a Wes Anderson movie, you can know if in five seconds, oh, this is a Wes Anderson film. Right. Where Demi's the opposite. Like, he was like this, this director who do all, like, he would do horror movies and monologues and comedies, and they would stylistically be, all be very different from each other, right. but they'd all be really good movies. Right. Even with music stuff. Like, he worked with bands, and, you know, he did, like, a few different things with Springsteen. But then also New Order video, oh, Pretenders, yeah. so he could move kind of through rock and roll, but also get a grasp on new wave or electronic music. So that's a that's a good call, because he didn't really have, even with movies, too, Silence of the Lambs, It's Dark, Philadelphia, It's Dark in a Different Way, you know, kind of getting out of that psychological murder space, but into, uh, you know, just sad human, you know, human sadness. Uh, Something Wild, that's a fun movie. Oh, yeah. 
Or like swimming to Cambodia, where it's just, it's like the most simplest to film, where it's just him putting a camera on Spalding Gray for like an hour and a half, but it's super compelling. Yeah. Crazy mama. <laughs> well, of course, there's also um, Stop Making Sense. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, if it's not the best concert film ever, it's definitely in the top three. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, that's like uh, taking a love of music, too, and, and really like uh, kind of paralleling this great slew of movies that you've directed uh, also and matching it with some really great concert films. So, Jonathan Demme, even though you made that crappy Ricky and the Flash, we'll forgive you because uh, <laughs> you're dead and stuff. So. Well, it's like, it's like David Bowie. I mean, you know, great man, but he made some, you know, he made Tim Machine too. I was going to, you know, the only time I got to see him live, I saw Tim Machine. And, oh, uh, no. You know, sometimes when I say that, now that he's dead, people go, oh, at least you got to see him. That's great. But before he died, when I would say, all I ever got to see was Tim Machine, you know, I'd usually get a sad face or <laughs> hand on the shoulder or, you know. Somebody wouldn't want to give me a flower, you know, something to make me smile. Uh, now it's a totally different story. Oh, you, you should just feel lucky you got to see him. It was really a good show. Not the best project that he did. Certainly was no, not the Ricky and the Flash of his career. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe it was, but I don't think he did anything any worse. I don't so. think so. I mean, it'd be like, I'm a big Lou Reed fan, and I'd probably feel the same way if like, I saw Lulu before he died. Being like, You're not oh. a big Lou Reed fan? No, I am. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> I'm saying comparison, like, if I saw yeah. Lulu before he uh, died, like, that'd also be my, god damn. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll give, we'll let everybody have their little, uh, their moments. Uh, yeah, we've got time to talk about a few more dead people. Ooh, uh, uh, I got one. All right. Uh, switching gears, um, it's uh, actually from uh, somebody from overseas. A French actress, Jean Moreau, passed away this year. It's a two N's and an E. And she was this amazing. It's actually interesting. Well, from I, I, Jules and Jim. Yeah, yeah. she's in Jules and Jim, and she was also in, like Touche Paul Grisby. Uh, she did a lot of. She's in a lot of French New Wave films, and she's actually married to director William Friedkin for a little bit. Oh. So she did some American movies. Kind of got, kind of got to know a lot of the big '70s people in that time period too. What's interesting about her is I was reading about her background, and and this kind of shows you like, you know, it's it's not a secret that Hollywood and the film industry has got fucked up and bizarre beauty standards to begin with. But it's just to tell you how bizarre they are that when Jean Moreau first started acting, everybody's like, "Oh, you're ugly. Like you can't do film, you can't do stage." And she's a beautiful, beautiful woman, oh, yeah. but she has these sunken kind of eyes, these these permanent circles. So she made this incredible actress for like film noir roles like she's this great fatale this great like fatalistic kind of character the kind of person who smokes cigarettes and knows life is shit <laughs> like like she's like like like, like, the, like the cliche of like the french woman who just hates her guts and will stub right. a cigarette out on you like that is jean moreau yeah she's uh the lovers yeah, yeah. she's great in that uh i sort of th- was thinking about earlier today uh someone like that who may be considered a little bit more of a beauty but uh claude j uh, she was also a, a French actress, so she has a little bit of that those, that similar uh, facial structure. Yeah. And then that was making me think, like, it, it definitely is different here. I mean, you can see that, a little bit of that style in some American actresses, but we're just still afraid to take a lot of chances here with yeah. just, you know, with all kinds of different things, you know, aside Very from true. just, like, uh, perfectly structured white peoples. But... Uh, <laughs> But then again, the contrast is, you know, Jean Moreau had a career in the France, but also we had like, something like Shelley Duvall, who's one of those actresses where it's like, 
doesn't meet any kind of Hollywood standards you'd think of, but she was awesome. I mean, she did Robert Altman films, did Kubrick, and she was just a really compelling presence. Yeah. I, I don't know that I still think that, uh, how, you know, how someone is, still has the opportunity to make it like that these days. I mean, I think we're a little bit more open to it in music, but I still think Hollywood films have a long way to go. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's funny. I was watching, um, I can't remember what it was called, like, a few years ago, sometimes I get bored and I'd watch MTV and they have like a lot of those new like high school shows. And it was amazing because every character in those shows, even the parents, are stupidly attractive. Yeah. To the point where even the nerd <laughs> characters are like, yeah. Everybody well, would, yeah, everybody would bone this person. There's, you are not a nerd on any right. universe. And that's like that whole thing, you know what I mean? You're you're a nerd only when your glasses are on and all those <laughs> yes, films. You know exactly. what I mean? Then all of a sudden, wait a minute, the glasses come off, the hair comes out of a bun. And then that person is like, or, you know, for a dude, just the glasses come off. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah. It's like Teen Wolf and all those. They're <laughs> all, everybody, you know, for your werewolf, your vampire, still everyone's odd. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, so that's Claude Jade, just so you can see her picture. Oh, and you yeah. see she kind of has also, she was in a few Truffauts. Yeah. Uh, still a little bit of an, that interesting kind of angle. Oh, totally, and, yeah. Yeah. We might have a whole show where we just talk about French ladies. I would not be opposed to that. <laughs> I think, well, let's see. Um, well, you know, also kind of skipping genre tracks, it's also been, uh, 2017's been a bad year for horror movie directors. Yeah, it has. In terms of staying alive. We got Tobe Hooper. Is it Tobe or is it Toby? Toby. Uh, I say Toby, but some people say Tobe. To be Hooper. <laughs> to be Hooper, yeah. Um, I think Toby is probably the proper way, but uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Still probably one of those films like I just cannot watch at night. So it's got to be in broad daylight. Yeah, that's actually a creepy movie. And we were talking earlier about it and how it's almost like, in my opinion, a little bit too, uh, the nostalgia takes over and kind yeah. of cuts through the creepiness for me but like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre things like that like you can still get the nostalgic feeling of like an old drive through movie or you know old uh, kind of rural midwestern places which I've lived in some uh, and it's still so creepy that it, it stays on top like those nostalgic settings are just a foundation but the creepiness overrides oh, yeah. everything it just transcends everything whereas I think they're not doing as much of that in some of these new movies to, to maintain that uh, and Texas Chainsaw is one for sure. Well, what's kind of amazing about that film too is like it's a, mo- a lot of the action takes place in like broad daylight, and so many horror films are at night. But some of the most disturbing, and creepy scenes in the film, like you can see everything's happened. Like it's 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 always shot with this kind of pastoral lighting. So it kind of it's almost like that scene in Mulholland Drive where about the bum steps out behind the dumpster. Oh yeah. Where that it's way creepier because it's happening in the middle of the day than it would at night. And something about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if it happened all in the evening. Something about it will kind of dilute the, the magic of it. Right. Fun house. I mean, that's oh, yeah. you know, it's a little bit silly. It kind of starts to fall into that whole 80s, uh, you know, genre of prom nights and things like that. But still pretty scary. Poltergeist. Oh, Poltergeist. Yeah. The, the one that's of, a classic. Also one of the classic <laughs> Cursed Productions. Yeah. Some people have all that film have died or had Oh, yeah, accidents. that's right. And that might be an interesting thing to that we might have to dedicate a whole episode to sometime is just strange things that have happened to people while they're making a movie. Uh, yeah. Apocalypse Now, I think was... No, not Apocalypse Now. Uh, oh, it's going to come to me. There was another film like that. I think it was the war-oriented film. Was it Island of Dr. Moreau? 
maybe I want to say apocalypse, but I'm not sure uh, mm-hmm. where they also faced a, a lot of like just tragic deaths and it may have, I know apocalypse now like they they suffered massive setbacks on it like okay. they, they had a whole documentary Hearts of Darkness just yeah, about Hearts of how Darkness. how just how terrible the production was yeah which is also also another great movie <laughs> we'll get to in our documentary uh, but yeah maybe that's what I'm thinking of I'm not sure right offhand but uh, Salem's Lot made for TV but still kind of creepy. Uh, proving that you can still make something for t- TV that can scare people. Um, and then also George Romero. Yep. The granddaddy of the zombie film. Which at this point, uh, it's one of those distinctions where it's like, I don't know whether to be proud of that or not. So, <laughs> like, I, I don't know about you, like, I'm so fatigued on zombies. Well, I'm, I think your zombie is my superhero right now. I'm just, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really hitting the brink here with superhero movies. And we're, we're going to talk about that at some point in time. But, Absolutely. yeah, I think if you care about zombies at all, too, you have to be zombied out a little bit. What do you think, what was the breaking point for you? Like, To be honest with you, I think it was The Walking Dead. Yeah. I mean, I watched it a few seasons. I got to the point where I'm like... At some point, the, the, t- stories, the, st- the tropes get tired. The whole idea of, hey, zombies aren't the real enemy, it's man. And it's like, dude, <laughs> that, that, that idea was, has been stale for decades. Yeah. I just it's one thing that it's also just a cheap idea. Like, it's just one of the things where it's like, there's not a whole lot you can do with the genre. Like, um, although I would say there's a show on the Sci Fi channel, Z Nation, which okay. is surprisingly fun. Yeah. Because they do different stuff with it. Like, their zombies have different rules and, like, they, they kind of go in a more absurdist direction. Yeah. It's more like Return of the Living Dead. We had the talking zombies and the right. dumb punks. Then it is like the original Romero films. So I yeah. kind of like that approach to it. Yeah. I think it just at this point, uh, I don't know where else it can go. You know, I mean, we've had the Shaun of the Deads. We've had the, you know, real absurdist. We've had the over-the-top comedy. We've had, you know, the, okay, it's the zombie apocalypse in, in, a, in our everyday life. And how would we face it if we were, you know, going through it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I will say Creepshow. That's a great George Romero. I'm a fan of the Creepshow movies. Dawn of the Dead. Um, Monkey Shine. I love Monkey Shine. <laughs> I love Monkey Shine too. Monkey I was just thinking about it the other day, so I'm <laughs> obsessed with anything monkey. See, I have a little monkey tattoo right there. Oh, I do too. You do? I have oh. the monkey from Doolittle. Oh, you do? Halo? I have a monkey wearing a fez with a psychic cross on it on my leg. Oh, that's, shit! That uh, goes back to... <laughs> that's a whole other uh, part of my life, but... Um, yeah, I like a monkey. Uh, monkey Shines came out in the later 80s, and uh, basically it's about a guy who gets a monkey that I think had been tested on, or... Yeah. Yeah, Clara. I want to say her name was Clara. Maybe I'm wrong. And it was like uh, a helper monkey. It was a helper disabled. monkey, yeah. Uh, and then something goes wrong with the monkey. And Jason Begke is the guy who has the monkey who I really like. He's on that cop show now, Chicago PD, but uh, he's a great character actor. And one of the things I really liked about him was that he came out in the Going Clear uh, Scientology documentary this last yeah. couple of years and really just uh, like put out some good facts about what life was like growing up. He grew up in Scientology. Oh, uh, and, you know, now just thinks that it's really fucking ridiculous. And... Uh, you know, has been really honest about his relationship with him. But that's a whole other thing. He's in Monkey Shines, which is just a, a story about a creepy yeah. monkey, but really great. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, but I think one thing about Monkey Shines too is whenever I see it, I always end up thinking that Simpsons episode where Homer gets a helper monkey. <laughs> Because that's like one of the, the pull bit where he's like, pray for Mojo. Yeah, I don't think I laughed harder in a Simpsons episode than that whole bit. Her name's Ella the monkey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She wants to do everything for him. Uh, and so then he she starts kind of acting out for him uh, the things, the, re- the revenge kind of uh, fantasies that he has. Yeah. Of people that are against him. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can't say that I wouldn't mind sometimes having a helper monkey that was going to help me uh, hurt people that hurt me or other <laughs> people that I care about. Um, I'm not going to do that, just in case anyone is listening that thinks I might do that. I'm not going to get a monkey and train it to carry out evil acts. I'm just saying sometimes I think everybody thinks that they would like to have an Ella. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of funny because you could do a film. We could do a film of a cat, of a, of a dog, or of a monkey. But you couldn't do like monkey shines with a cat. Cat shines, yeah. A cat would just be like, screw it. Like I don't care. Like, Cat's like, like I'm not killing yeah. anybody for you. Yeah, I don't like you. Uh, even if I do like you, I still don't feel like killing anyone for you. That requires so. me to do something, and I, I'm not about effort. Yeah. But here's a question, and it's not um, something I kind of wonder about is. Of like of all like the deaths we've been talking about, has any of them actually kind of affected you personally, or like one where you actually felt generally sad or depressed when you heard they passed? Uh, Powers Booth, just because mm. I really liked his style, uh, and I think that that I was I'm, I've always been interested in cults and yeah. cult leaders. So even when I was a little kid, I started so probably about eight or nine is when I started actively reading. Uh, like books about Manson and Colts and stuff, so it was kind of creepy kid. Yeah. Uh, and then that the movie came out, the Guyana Tragedy movie with him. So I've always just kind of had that picture of Jim Jones in my head with him, and he was so perfect at it. And I just liked it. I thought he had a great style. He was probably yeah. a little underutilized, so I felt a little bummed. Chuck Barris passed this year. That was a little um, sad. Uh, Adam West, just because the. Uh, live-action Batman show is, you know, one of the best Batmans to me. I mean, it's oh, not yeah. just, it's the goofiest of the Batmans, but it's still, like, in a way, the most brilliant of the Batmans. You know, that, that series was phenomenal. So. Well, it's better than the Joel Schumacher one, at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, we, we can give the Adam West version shit all we want, but yeah. it's still a thousand times more entertaining <laughs> yeah. and more artistically valid than oh, yeah. Batman and Robin. The colors, the sets, the storylines, oh, yeah. the great characters. Yeah, it's a, it's just a blast. But how about you? Did you cry over anybody? No, I'm not cry. But I, I'd just say if I had to pick one, it'd probably be Jean Moreau. Because I think part of oh. like my French background, and especially like in my 20s, like... I wasn't very social, so I used to just go to work. I'd go home, set my paycheck, and buy a shit ton of Criterion DVDs. I watched tons of foreign movies. So I got used to seeing her in so many different films. So hearing she passed kind of evokes a nostalgia in me. Sure. So you like real French people acting rather than like goofy Americans like Jerry Lewis becoming uh, endeared by the French people is a little better for you than. uh, Oh, definitely. But yeah. I, I do have to admit, too, and maybe it sounds a little weird, but I'm kind of... I think last year after Bowie and Prince died, I think I lost my ability to really be moved by that sort of stuff anymore. Because there, those are like two people that I 
was so huge a fan, such a huge fan of. Yeah. And it was so devastating when they left. I felt afterwards like, well, it was like the two worst celebrity deaths I could think of. Yeah, it was a pretty tough, it was a pretty tough period with both of them going. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of sad things that, yeah, I think because they, some of these actors have been with us for so many decades too, like Mary Tyler Moore, everyone grew yeah. up with her, Adam West, everyone grew up with them. So it just uh, kind of, it's like a little, just a little tiny part of your life, you know, gets sliced off. You know, and it's not coming back anymore. You ha- you know, you have this memory of it, so it's nostalgic, but it's not. Uh, I didn't have the same emotional attachment to them yeah. than like uh, Bowie's music or Prince, like you said. Or, yeah. Oh, totally. It's Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris. <laughs> he was a really unique, brilliant person. Uh, and just that whole CIA story he concocted, <laughs> like, like I, I, <laughs> there's a part of me that really wants to believe it's all true. Because because just the sheer degree of preposterousness of the story, like it's like when you hear about you know oh there's like a, a bigfoot creature in the Mogollon Rim or something like and you know it's probably not true, <laughs> right. but you kind of hope it's true because it just makes life more interesting. Yeah, it does. Like I recently, I won't say any names, but I'm doing an editing project for somebody uh, who is like has a financial background, a career, but he also is like knows a lot of high up Washington folks and kind of has alluded to the fact that he's been. Um, involved with some behind-the-scenes kind of spy activity. Uh, you know, and he really sells it. Uh, but, you know, and then when you mention it to other people, they're like, oh, yeah, right, he was a spy. But, like, I kind of want to believe it. You know what I mean? Because oh, totally. I do think everything that happens is based on something that already happened or some kind of crazy shenanigans that went on already. So, in my mind, like, nothing is really that much of a stretch. Like... It's so far-fetched, but to me, that does not at all mean that it couldn't have happened or can't be true, you know? Oh, no, totally. <laughs> so, I can go with that. Well, again, you know, it's always that old adage of how truth is always going to be stranger than fiction. Right. It's like the Jerry Lewis thing. I mean, if I were to tell, if I were to tell anybody, <laughs> like, hey, there's this comedian did a Holocaust comedy. <laughs> like, nobody would believe that. It'd be, it's a, it's a, um, ridiculous, but... It happened. Yeah. It's a thing. I don't think any... I, I mean, I never, ever heard of that, but... Yeah, Chuck Barris was just a... He was a little bit of his own national treasure. Um, Roger Moore is another person that passed away this year. And and let's be frank, you know what I mean? There's only really one thing you can say about him. He was the second best ball and trade, I I mean, to most people. Uh, (laughs) And that's not so bad, because we have a growing list of bonds. And maybe you don't think... I don't know, what do you think? Do you think he was the second best bond? you know, I would agree because I think he was the most fun Bond. I mean, like, yeah. Connery, you know, it's a classic Bond. Daniel Craig is like, yeah, he's like... He's the action-adventure person's Bond in yeah. a different way than Bond's action-and-adventure antics. You know what I mean? He totally. takes it to that... He brings in that real, true action part of an action character into, like, the suaveness of the Bond and everything, I think. No, I agree. And, and like, Pierce Brosnan, I think, would have, like, he had this advantage of being in some of the worst Bond movies, other than Goldeneye. Like, yeah. he, he was almost a perfect Bond. He just got a run of lousy scripts. Roger Moore, it's like, yeah, he's, like, the goofy laser. Like, again, he, he's the guy who's in a movie with Grace Jones as a henchman who tries to kill him with a fishing rod. Like that, that, <laughs> those are the Roger Moore years. Right. But I love, the, I love that approach to the, 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 the uh, Bond films where they weren't serious. They were just these over-the-top movies where it's just him sleeping with women of ridiculous names. And right. fighting henchmen with stupid gimmicks. Right. That's what you want in that character, you know? Yeah. You, you know, I didn't need it to be too 
action fighting. I like Daniel Craig, and I think that he he does just fine, and he's got the dashing sensibility and stuff too. But I don't necessarily need it to go that far. And what was the other guy? The, Timothy Dalton. Was Timothy he Dalton. The, he yeah. was the one time. Fine? I think he was like the one and done. Yeah, <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think he was working with also with the best script, and it, he wasn't the. The best Bond, so he. I don't think he brought the move, the move, the script up, and I don't think the script bolstered him either. It just kind of was a wash, yeah, all the way around. And he's one of those actors who like he's great in other stuff. Like um, he was in Hot Fuzz, and he was like fantastic in that movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was the uh, the store, the, the sinister store manager, the one who's always kind of running around, and the guy you yeah. think is clearly the villain, and he's like he is, but he's not like the guy. I forgot about him. John Hurt. Oh, yeah. I forgot about John. Yeah, because yeah. we, we had John Hurt and John Hurt this year. Did they both die? Mm-hmm. Oh, they did both die. Okay. Much like being a horror director, it's a bad year <laughs> to be John. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're... Oh, so there was a bad prostitute joke in there. <laughs> I didn't take it, but I think if, if, you're, if you're a good listener, then you could put it all together for yourself. Uh, yeah. John Hurt, a classic actor. Oh yeah, I mean he, yeah. you know again he's an alien. Game over. He played the the professor in Hellboy. I mean he's really he's really in his Twilight years he had a he's really good at having that gravitas. Yes. Or Snowpiercer. He was fantastic Snow, in Snowpiercer. that. Snowpiercer. Yeah. Uh, and I have a, I know I I like Snowpiercer. I've had I've had this argument with a lot of people who are like can't see any good to it, but uh, I don't know. I found it pretty entertaining. Uh, oh yeah, I mean it, it's definitely kind of a bleak movie. Yeah. But it's a fun film. Like the like the whole construct the whole the whole conceit of them battling their way up to the front of the subway. It's it's kinda of like the Warriors, like an entire environment. Right. I mean and yeah, you do have a, it's definitely a film where you have a film of like Chris Evans doing a serious monologue about eating babies, which is like <laughs> so like like I I I love how many takes they must have done to get that right. Yeah. Because how can you say it with a straight face? Like, it's like, babies taste the best. Like, like, how do you sell that line? How? Yeah. He did it. He but did it, it. Must, yeah. it must have took them, like, hours to get that right. Yeah. And that's kind of a whole interesting genre, too, is, like, just those, those fighting out the class structure battles. Uh, did you see High Rise? No. No, I didn't. Yeah. I only saw part of it, and I want to see it again, just because I, I think it that, that could be a whole other fun show that we could do, too. Oh, yeah. Some of these class battles, you know, the Hunger Games type of thing, Snowpiercer. I mean, they're all kind of based around some similar uh, ideas, you know. Oh, totally. All right, I got another one like on that van be like, it was Dread. Oh, yeah, Dread. Which, which is just one of those films, like, I don't think it gets enough love, because it is really a, a nasty visceral and just well shot action movie. Yeah. But has that, that, that darker subtext them days just mowing their way for the underclass. Yeah. Which I guess is kind of uh, just like life. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like it's I think it's harder to do dystopian fiction nowadays because yeah. like reality is just too close to it. I know, I was watching the the series of The Handmaid's Tale and I was like, ooh, it's a little rough right now. Like <laughs> And that's really sad because I want I want a lot of distance between myself and a show like that. Uh, and unfortunately, with this regime that we have in place right now, we just don't have enough space between that kind of story and real life. So, you know, I think maybe that's why I think zombie stuff is kind of cold for me now. Is that I, like I don't mind hopeless stories, but at a certain point, like I just want a narrative where 
you feel that there's some possibility for those characters to come out okay at the end. Right. And zombie stories are the kind of thing where it's like everybody's screwed in those stories. Right. Almost always. So at a certain point, you basically just watch people kind of on the minutes so they get eaten. And it just... I, I can't take much joy or interest in that after a while. Right. And you start to... When you put yourself in that, because a lot of times you put yourself in that story, like, what would I do? In the zombie stories, you know, you... You don't, you know, it's the same thing you're thinking about. I would just be buying my time. You know, a lot of times you end up watching those things thinking like, I think at this point, if I had to make this or that choice, I might just like let that person eat me or I might jump in front of this train or like how it kind of forces you to think about how, whether you would fight or not. Yeah. And sometimes you're on the the darker side of that with your answer. Uh well, of course, yeah. everybody watching the show is like, oh, I'd be like Daryl. Like, I would be, I'd be like this total badass. Like, no, most no. of us would go out like, we go out like punks pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah but John Hurt, great. Yeah. Shakespearean, uh, you know, all over the board. Uh, John Hurd, another good character actor. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, Maybe not his most dignified credit, but he was a Sharknado. He was. Yeah, he was a drunk George. Home Alone, yeah. Home Alone. Uh, just one Sharknado for him? I think yeah, he, he did, uh, spoiler alert, he did not make out a Sharknado one. Oh, okay. No, no I, Ian Ziering has made it for like five of those movies, but John Hurt did not make it out of one movie. In case you're wondering what's going on with Ian Ziering, you can find him in... Yes, in a future episode, we'll just spoil all the Sharknado films for you. Yeah, sorry about that. I guess I didn't. I just, I didn't make it to the end of Sharknado, <laughs> along with John Hurt's character. I think, uh, yeah, those films. That, that, that's a whole other rant that could go on. Yeah. The Sharknados and the Snakes on a Plane kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I love bad movies, but I, I hate bad movies that are intentional. Because I think part of the joy of like The Room, for example, is a film where you watch that movie oh, and you right. know Tommy Wiseau did not intend for it to be a terrible film. Right. It's just terrible. It's just bad. Exactly. With Sharknado, you know it's a dumbass concept. You know when they sat down, they're like, this is stupid right. and funny. And you can just see that they're not trying. Right. And I think if they made a film that they really actually put effort into it and it was just bad, then it's like Troll 2 or like Ed Wood <laughs> films. Like there's, there's some dignity in that. Right. Yeah, there was no dignity in the, the Sharknado or Snakes on a Plane. You know, you had your five minutes with that in the trailer. You know, I'm, I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. And then that's really the whole movie. Like, you you know, you you know it's going to be bad. You know, well, you yeah. just are intentionally just like, we're going to put this guy in here who everyone loves his voice to say this one funny line and then that's it. But, yeah, with The Room, you know, you start to watch just because you're like, how... How does something like that? Happen? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know the snakes too. It's bothering about, bothering about that film is that there are these hints that it could have been a better movie. Like at one point in that movie, they introduce a character on the plane who's like a Thai kickboxer. Oh I remember watching it, thinking like, okay, he's gonna kick the shit out of some snakes. Yeah. But that's why they have this character on there. He's gonna throw down a bunch of snakes. He punches one snake. <laughs> that's it. Every the feet would be like, are you kidding me? Why? Why? Why would you taunt us this way? They really want to show the invincibility of those snakes. And I guess they did. Uh, yeah. Yeah, another person kind of flew under the radar, I think, John Heard. Yeah. yeah. CSI, some Sopranos action. White chicks. Oh, yeah. Now, I think that does fall in the category of movies that were not supposed to be intentionally bad, but really there yeah. was no other way for that script to go. It's like an almost uncanny valley bad. 
Yeah. Like you look at those pictures of the Wayne brothers and they're done up in those costumes and it's just like it's almost like adult. They could be Lynch characters, really. Yeah. That's like you didn't really even try there. And then, uh, yeah. No one's buying that. Hmm. I'm trying to think if there's anyone we missed. We've got Steven first. Uh, for those who don't know, he was Flounder in the classic Animal House movie. <laughs> uh, so I think he had some other things that he did, but I think that was a real defining role for him. Uh, and probably for a lot of people that were in that movie at the time. I think you can recall a young Kevin Bacon, uh, some folks like that. Babylon 5. Hmm. Jungle Cups. I think I missed out on that one. Simone uh, and Yeah, I, I did not know about any of this. He had some kind of a contract that seemed to get him a lot of jungle-themed shows. Uh... <laughs> It still amazes me the cruelty of the universe. See, all of these people passed away. All of them who, are, who did interesting and unique things, and we still have Zack Snyder in the world. We still have Michael Bay. <laughs> yeah, you really have a thing for Michael Bay, I'm starting to think. I, who couldn't have a thing for Michael Bay? <laughs> like, you, look, I, I'm not going to fight you on it, no. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I would love to fight with somebody about it, because like, I'd love to hear that argument. Like, I used to... Um, I'll tell you the reason why I hate Michael Bay is I used to donate plasma like years ago. Like it was like a ZLB, this clinic up in Tempe. Was it a poor punk rock person kind of donate your plasma? I did that. I yeah, it was that. one of those things where it was like, you know, you get like, you can make like 50 bucks a week, 60 bucks. Like it was, yeah. it was well, worth it to do it all the time. Yeah, that, that was more than what I was getting. <laughs> Prices went up. Yeah. Uh, they did. They, they need that juice. <laughs> but what made it suck is that, you, you know, you go to the place, they put you on a little couch, they hook you up. And they have TVs running films all day. And this clinic played Michael Bay and Adam Sandler movies all the time. So I watched Armageddon like dozens of times. I'm sorry. And I couldn't escape because I was hooked into my veins. (laughs) So I couldn't run. I have to watch over and over again. Did you think at some point in time, like, maybe I have a real tough decision here to make? Like, maybe I'm going to pull these these, uh, wires out of my body and... Yeah. At one point, uh, I think it was, I, I watched, it was, the, it was the third time they played I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, where I'm like, fuck this money. <laughs> I will find some other way yeah. making this extra scratch. I will not do it's this anymore. It's real sad. I just saw, saw an, or heard an interview with uh, Adam Sandler on Stern, and he's now, Netflix is re- exclusively releasing his movies, so he's going straight to Netflix with his movies uh, for like a huge deal, like a $60 million deal. And I'm thinking like, is that comparable to what your piece of shit movies make in the box office because I mean every once in a while you know he can I like that he has a lot of unusual characters in his movies yeah. like but they're really unusual seeming characters it's kind of like a facade like when they're so weird or bizarre you think like oh you know he's kind of opening up a world to like freaks you know what I mean yeah. like, he's a guy who loves freaks but then when you kind of get to know the characters they're really kind of trite and uh, yeah. flat, uh, like a Chucks and Larrys, or Ugh. you know. So I, I don't know. I'm not a big Adam Sandler movie either. fan. And I thought, God, someone's gonna throw sixty million dollars at you to just keep throwing out these bad characters and pieces of shit. But it's funny because in an article somewhere they said that it's him and Will, Will Smith were probably the only two actors in Hollywood who could reliably bankroll a film. 
Like their their presence in a movie would guarantee they would do well in the box office. That's sad. I mean, I would actually probably favor seeing the Will Smith. I know. Movie, and I don't know that there's that there's anything real great shakes going on there. Um, Transformers. Oh. <laughs> no. No. Can't do Hell it. Hell to the no. Yeah. The Purge. Purge is alright. Purge is another one that sort of falls in that, uh, you know, let's the class warfare kind of thing, you know, like in a way. I guess the rich people have the. Have you seen any of the Purge movies? I saw the first two. And yeah. They're all right. Like they're, it's it's one of those ideas where it's it's kind of a ludicrous idea, but it's, it's yeah. a fun pulpy one. Yeah, I, I like the idea better than yeah. I actually like the the movies. Oh like, yeah. yeah, the execution the, is definitely a little the, off. The execution's terrible, and some of the acting is really bad. But I kind of I I really liked the the story if it would have been done well, or maybe by somebody else doing it. Oh to take, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, fine. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. That was my. I was a huge Turtles freak when I was a kid. Like I, I had like the the Rolling Dome. I had all the action figures, all the shows on V, all the episodes on VHS. Like the Nintendo game, I played ceaselessly. Like I loved Turtles. All right. Well, Michael Bay, Ashley is waiting for you to die uh, so you can continue to say more things about you. Counting the minutes. Unfortunately. I know it's bad karma to say that, <laughs> but I am counting the minutes. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Maybe we can dig up one more person. One more dead body. John Adelson. Rocky director. Oh, yes. All right. Yeah. Cool. Karate Kid. Yeah, there's some good directing there. So basically, the the uh, he was the Steven Spielberg of training montages. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to say it. Because really, yeah. those are the two. I mean, to this like I, I watched Karate Kid like a dozen times as a kid. But if you ask me right now to tell you anything about, all I can think about is sweep the leg and you're right. the best around. It's the same thing with Rocky. It's, those are two classic mentor tales that uh, you know we grew up with, but they they could both be. Timeless stories, even without the remakes. Uh, I don't think there was an official Rocky remake other than the sequels, but uh, there was a Karate... I didn't see the Karate Kid remake. Yo, it was so bad. Speaking of Will Smith. It was so uh, terrible. The Will Smith kid, right? But yeah, those are perfect mentor tales. uh, Absolutely. Kind of hopeful, kind of timeless. But yeah, so we can thank uh, John Appleson for some of those. May you rest in peace. All right, so I, f- I think uh, I think that might be uh, yeah. There's enough corpses for our party yeah, today. I mean, there's a a giant uh, you know graveyard of people we could talk about, but I think we're gonna let some of them continue to rest in peace uh, here on Prize Fighting Kangaroo, again in partnership with Yab Yum Music and Arts and Seven Streams Media. Join us next time as we talk about the best films that we've seen this year, and maybe some of the worst ones. And a knife while crawling through the hanging It can make the boat turn warm, so I keep it running to me. This is like you gotta take the good with me. You work hard and bake the bread, ends out good little piece.